Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 29, Proverbs 29, and if you don't have a Bible with you, I will be reading the passage as we go along, so if you just listen uh, attently, then uh, you'll be able to catch what we're saying from Proverbs chapter 29. And those of you that are here in the auditorium should have received an outline on the way in so that you can follow along uh, for today's message. We're now in the second major division of the book of Proverbs. That division is from chapters 10 through 31, and it contains the short, memorable wisdom sayings that we call Proverbs. And those sayings, those Proverbs, cover various topics. We've seen so far what Proverbs says about things like the way we communicate and the need to practice discernment. Last week, we saw the necessity of dealing with our sin struggles, or they, in fact, will deal with us. Today, you see in the title of the message at the top of your outlines that we're going to see what Proverbs says about the universal battle with anger. This past June... A month after the riots in Minneapolis in response to the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police, and while we were in the throes of the early months of the pandemic, the Washington Post published an article titled, Americans are living in a big anger incubator. It said this, Americans are angry. The country erupted into the worst civil unrest in decades after the death of George Floyd, And anger about police violence and the country's legacy of racism is still running high. At the same time, we're dealing with anger provoked by the coronavirus pandemic. Anger at public officials because they've shut down parts of society, or anger because they aren't doing enough to curb the virus. Anger about being required to wear a mask, or anger toward people who refuse to wear a mask. Anger at anyone who doesn't see things the, quote, right way. And that was written six months before we had another occasion for widespread anger, an election, the outcome of which motivated some to violently storm the the nation's capital in an attempt to stop the electoral process from proceeding. Being reminded of those episodes of anger might also remind you of your own reactions to them. Perhaps you found yourself angry at the expressions that took to the streets, or in D.C., or you've been angry that not everyone's incensed at those who don't wear a mask or at those who told us to. We have our own personal anger, sometimes in reaction to others' anger or others' lack of that anger, or sometimes it's just our response to whatever it is we don't approve of, ranging from getting really ticked to mildly irritated and everything in between. Your personality affects how demonstrative you are in expressing your anger, as well as your upbringing and how you were taught by people around you, by example, how to vent your displeasure. You may be the road rage type, a yeller, a thrower, a shooter, (laughs) someone who's always close to going over the edge, or you're a slow burn type that curses under your breath, of course in a Christian way, (laughs) smiles through clenched teeth, and assassinates silently. However we display it, anger is something with which we all deal and struggle. And so it's good for us to hear from God on this important matter. 
Let's bow now and ask God to help us as we do. Lord, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of being here. And now to open up your word and be instructed on this important issue, an issue about which you speak many times in your word, to help us, to guide us with a struggle that all of us have. May we indeed then be instructed, open to what you say, and open to changing, to conform to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In that outline that you should have, I say first of all this, anger must be uprooted. Now here's a definition at the very outset of, of anger for you. Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Now I'm going to display that a couple of more times later in the, the message. So you can get it down now, if not then, now, then you'll be able to then. Now, I'm going to talk about how that plays out in our lives a bit later, but for now, just understand that anger arises when we don't like the way something is gone. And our displeasure may be justified or not, but either way, it's our evaluation, right or wrong, that moves us to anger. Verse 8 of Proverbs 29 says this, Mockers stir up a city. This is someone who may not be angry personally, but takes advantage of the anger of others to rally them. They stir them up. I say in the outline that anger must be uprooted, but the foolish increase it. They increase that anger. The mocker, spoken of in verse 8, eggs others on. Now that word mocker in verse 8 is one of several terms in the book of Proverbs that falls under the broad category of a fool. The mocker, or sometimes it's translated a scoffer or a scorner, is a particular type of fool. One who denounces and makes light of important things. So if he's given sway, he can influence others. According to the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, he can make a bad situation worse by, for example, quote, bringing a community's inner resentment against social injustices, cheating, favoritism, nepotism, bringing those to a boiling point by laughing at the moral order, distorting the truth, and arousing people's passions through heated rhetoric, end quote. This person, the mocker, the scorner, the the scoffer, is a rabble-rouser who gets people fired up, sometimes to set fires in cities, sometimes to storm hallowed buildings. We might call that person an agitator. Even if he's right in what he's mocking and scorning, his anger is destructive rather than constructive. And so Proverbs warns this, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. So, do you know someone like that, personally? If so, Proverbs is saying, continue practicing social distancing with that that person. Or, practice distancing from other voices who you may not know personally, but you're allowing to influence you 
making you uneasy and discontent. So friends, we should ask ourselves, do I have someone in my life personally who's like this, who I'm allowing to influence me this way? Proverbs is saying, you need to distance yourself. But even those you don't know personally may be given entree to speak into your life, and you need to be careful. Do you have someone on TV or radio that you turn on in the morning, leave on all day at home or at work that gets you riled up? If you take in a regular diet of that five or six days a week, then I do not stand a chance in trying to help you focus your mind on our mission. And as the Bible says, things like whatever is true and noble and pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. But if we're preoccupied, thinking about all this other stuff, allowing other voices to get us angry, doesn't stand a chance. And I say, I don't stand a chance to focus your mind better because of what historian Paul Matsko of the Libertarian Cato Institute said is true. He said this, evangelical clergy only get their congregants in the pews one to three times a week. Cable news and talk radio get them every day, all day. The worldview of the average evangelical is much more shaped by what they consume from media than by what their pastors preach from the pulpit. And that message tells them to be afraid. Very, very afraid. America is changing, and it's almost always for the worse. It's hard to remember all the things that we're bombarded with that are designed to scare us because of, frankly, the sheer volume of them. The talking heads and the politicians seek to scare us. We get jazzed about it for a while. It doesn't happen like they said it would, but we've long forgotten because we've moved on now to something else. I just tried to think of some of these. And I remember when I was in college, in the early 80s, and Ronald Reagan was the president. And I remember how scared, I mean really scared, a large segment of the country was because Reagan was going to start a nuclear war. I remember being on the college campus and people walking around with the, the gas masks on, the nuclear winter masks on campus. Debates raged about when, not if, but when Reagan was going to do this. And of course, here we are 40 years later. Do you recall about 10 years ago that there were going to be death panels? in the Obamacare plan? More recently, we've been told that the Supreme Court's going to be packed. Now, let me just make a prediction. It won't. Not in the near future, anyway. And many had said that we'd be required to wear masks forever. Did you hear anybody say that? Maybe you said that. They're never going to let this go. They're going to make us wear masks forever. I recommend you keep track of the claims and if your sources are wrong, stop listening to those sources. Remember, the mocker himself may not be particularly angry. But he knows the people are angry. He knows the city is angry. The community is angry. And so he stokes it, whether for money or for power. Those on TV do it to bring themselves money. 
politicians for power. Thankfully, some really do care deeply about issue, the issues about which they speak and to which they rally others. But for others, on TV and radio or in office, for them, friends, you're a pawn in their personal power or money game, and you must not allow them to lead you in that direction. The foolish, the mocker, the scoffer, the scorner increases anger by fomenting it, by increasing it. But the wise eliminate it. Verse 8 says, mockers stir up a city, but the wise turn away anger. The wise turn away anger by, according again to Bruce Waltke, quote, addressing the issues of the heart, not by proposing superficial measures that cover over the internal tensions. They call upon the community to repent of wrongdoing, to confront its difficulties while trusting the sovereignty and goodness of God, to seek the well-being of others, not of self, to speak with both calm reason for truth and with grace, and to act kindly and charitably toward one another, end quote. The wise take helpful action in response to the harmful action of others. In fact, you could say this, the wise person takes positive action because they're angry. <laughs> the wise person is angry. They're displeased at what the mocker is doing. And it's good to be displeased. It's good to be angry if that displeasure, that anger, are toward the right things. You see, friends, we are all made by God to be moral beings who have a sense of right and wrong, and we're to act upon that. And we're all making evaluations all the time, and then we're responding. The question is whether we're evaluating and responding well or not. And that's why some anger is good. Because if you see something that's truly wrong, we should be moved to make it right if at all possible. That's called righteous anger. And we see examples of it in the Bible. We see an example of it. In Exodus chapter 32, you'll remember that Moses met with God on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. And then when Moses came down, that the people had made a golden calf, an image, and they were worshiping that image. And the Lord said to Moses, they are a stiff-necked people so that my anger burns against them. That's righteous anger. And many of you know the story of Jesus going into the temple when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And he saw the house of God being used as a place of commerce. The Bible says Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers. It is written, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. You are making it a den of robbers. And the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that there will indeed be times for you to be angry. But in that anger, be sure it's righteous. Do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. It's saying this, be angry about the right things. Act on it in the right way and reconcile relationships affected by anger quickly. And the wise do that. The wise seek to eliminate foolish anger. That may require confronting it. Which is why I have next in your outline, not only that anger must be uprooted, but it must be upbraided. 
Now that word upbraided, it's not one we use often. It means taking a person to task for their behavior, confronting them, rebuking them, censuring them. In this case, doing so in court. Because verse 9 says, If a wise person goes to court with a fool, the fool rages and scoffs, and there is no peace. The wise person, in contrast to the fool, is calm and uses the avenues and the institutions available to him to help himself and others by quieting the fool. But the fool ridicules those very processes and institutions. When confronted for their behavior, the fool will ridicule it, I say in your outline. Now, when I say the foolish ridicule it, the it is the very process itself. It's a joke to him. He can tear it down even though it's something that took centuries to create. Tear it down, and often quickly, even though it's something that may have taken centuries to create. Did you know, friends, that our system of justice in our country goes back centuries, even millennia? We are blessed with an American system of justice that draws upon British common law going back centuries and even Hammurabi's code of laws and, of course, the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. In our Supreme Court building, there are reliefs of Hammurabi and Moses carved into the building itself. And so it should concern us, friends, when judges are belittled and even threatened when our institutions are attacked and maligned. don't know everyone here. I certainly don't know everyone's political persuasion. I'm not particularly interested. I do know most of you, and I know that most of us are conservative in our leanings. But we need to remember, friends, what conservative means. It means to conserve stuff. It means to keep stuff. Not destroy. And when you hear those kinds of things being belittled, maligned, even destroyed, be concerned. Because those things can easily be torn down, even though they took centuries and thousands of years to erect. Anger must be upbraided, but fuels, fools ridicule the very process, but the wise revere it. The wise are willing to submit their case to arbitration. Verse 9 says, go to court against a fool because they're confident they can back up their claims with good evidence. And in the end, the fool is going to be seen for who and what he or she is. And we'll see in verse 11, sentenced. By contrast, verse 9 says, the fool flies off the handle and tries to laugh the case out of court. The wise believe in truth and that truth will ultimately prevail, especially when matters are taken to court in an orderly process. And the wise respect the process. They trust God to work through it. And so they calmly go about debunking false claims in court rather than in the crowd or with a bullhorn or on the media. Anger must be uprooted, upbraided, and 
upstaged. Because verse 10 says, The bloodthirsty hate a person of integrity and seek to kill the upright. Fools hate wisdom, and so they hate the wise. (laughs) This verse now, verse 10, escalates the internal revulsion that the fool has for the wise to show how ultimately bloodthirsty they are. That they disregard the sanctity of human life. They, and they have nothing but contempt toward fine, godly people. And so they attempt to murder every person whose life conforms to the established moral order. And this is true of both sides of the political aisle, friends. You have fools on all sides. Do you know that? We all get that? Whether that's in the streets of a city, whether that's in our capital. Verse 10 escalates this inferior type of person, this fool, from merely the fool to now the murderer. In verse 9, the fool's brought to court. We're going to see in verse 11, he's sentenced through a due process of law that the wise person pursues. All right, so how does all of this relate to your anger and my anger? Well, most of us are not rioters. At least I haven't seen any mugshots from the FBI's Most Wanted or any of that. Most of us are not, are not rioters, at least not physically. But we too fit the definition of anger, which is, I remind you again, anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Whether our expression of displeasure is the loud or subtle variety, the Bible puts them both in the same category murder. You know that? The Bible puts your anger and my anger in the category of murder. Now we think of people that are loud and boisterous and people who are very demonstrative in their anger. Those are the most angry people. Those are the most dangerous angry, angry people. But the Bible puts it all in the same category. Do you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He said this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then James asks this in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is this, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. (laughs) He just goes right to murder. Now, there's no report from the first century of a particular problem with murder in the assemblies of the Christians to whom James was writing, physical murder, but he calls it that. You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. What the Bible is doing is causing us to see that our anger, however expressed, whatever our chosen form of Expressing our displeasure is a difference in degree, but not of kind. It's all of a piece. And the Bible calls it murder. One author says this, Expressing anger through silence is a common form of communication in relationships. The Bible describes the silent treatment as murder. 
a sobering descriptor for this form of anger. While we know physical murder is the severe, dramatic, and permanent erasure of someone's life and is consequentially and exponentially far worse than the silent treatment, there is a similarity between these two forms of anger. Physical murder says, I do not like you. Therefore, I'm going to make sure you do not exist by killing you. The silent treatment says, I do not like you. Therefore, I'm going to treat you as though you do not exist by not speaking to you. The silent treatment is the sanitized version of distancing yourself from another person. Though the consequences are radically different, the desired virtual erasure of a person from your life can be accomplished through the silent treatment. The silent treatment is not about an inability to communicate, but a deliberate choice to not speak to someone. So though we judge overt anger more harshly because it's by definition more disruptive, God doesn't. God sees our hearts and knows perfectly, and if, now hear this, that if that heart were joined to a different personality and or upbringing, we'd be inclined to act out our anger like others. Some of the most relationally dangerous people I've ever known are also the most likable. Some of the most relationally dangerous people I have ever known are also the most likable. And that's why they are diabolically effective. Do not make mistake, friends, a pleasant personality for godliness. They are not the same thing. Five years ago, I did a series called How to Be Good and Angry, which you can listen to on our website. It was based on an excellent book by that same title, a book that we have in our resource center. And the book says, at its core, anger is very simple. It expresses, I'm against that. It's an active stance that you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, you size it up, and you say, that matters, and it's not right. You encounter something in your world that crosses the line. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something you find offensive and wish to eliminate. At its core, it's not a heightened pitch of emotion. It's not the surge of adrenaline. It's not any particular way of expressing anger. It's not which events or people happen to tick you off. It's not whether you get into arguments. The underlying essence of anger is a negative evaluation. Again, the definition, active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Now, what it is that displeases us varies widely. What we think is important enough depends on all sorts of factors, not least how elevated our self-image is. The higher our evaluation of ourselves, the more things there are to displease us and care about. The higher our evaluation of ourselves, the more things there are and more people there are to be displeased with. Nobody measures up. I'm surrounded by idiots. 
Why can't anybody get it right? Can these people not drive? Can you not see the line? Did you not see? I got to make this right. That's an injustice because it's violating me. And y'all know me. <laughs> I'm me. The higher our evaluation of ourselves, the more things and people there are to displease us and care about. For the person who thinks highly of himself or herself, any slight displeases. Any slight is something to care about, and it moves us to action of some sort, whether of the loud or quiet variety. That's your anger. That's my anger. And everything in between. Anger must be uprooted, upbraided. It must be upstaged, taken to and dealt with, even if it means taken to court and dealt with. And then finally, upended. Now, uprooted, upbraided, upstaged, upended. Uh, I did all of that just for the sake of one of our pastors, Dr. Combs. Because let me let you in on a secret. Dr. Combs hates what's called alliteration. That's it. The points have the same letter at the beginning. And so every now and then I just do that. Every now and then I do it just to tick him off. Now he's on vacation. He's in North Carolina right now. He's watching right now on live stream. And I just went through four points that start with the same letter. No, the same two first letters. So Dr. Combs is blowing a gasket right now in North Carolina. <laughs> Proving my point about anything can draw your displeasure. Verse 11. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. When it says they bring calm, that's a Hebrew verb that occurs elsewhere only in connection with the Lord's capacity to calm the stormy sea. It's used in Psalm 65 and verse 7. Psalm 65 and verse 7, also in Psalm 89 and verse 9, that very way, about saying it's the Lord who calms the raging sea. And so the wind causes the sea to rage, and it's the Lord alone who can calm it. And that sense now also fits here, because it's the wise now who stills the fool's raging, his hot air, all the stuff that he's bellowing about. By sound arguments in this courtroom atmosphere, delivered in a cool spirit with a gentle tongue, the wise finally still the raging of the fool and his detrimental effects upon the community. But don't mistake that to mean that the fool has now changed his character. The fool has simply been boxed in. That must happen for an orderly society, for an orderly community of any type to move forward, but better still for that person to be changed from the inside out so that they view themselves properly, no longer as one who can rage about anything that displeases them, and that those number of people and things that displease them are innumerable because they have such a high opinion of themselves. When someone comes to Jesus Christ, they no longer have that high evaluation, do they? 
The reason, the very reason, the very first step in coming to Jesus is recognizing that I can do nothing to recommend myself to God. That I have no righteousness of my own. That before God, I am no better than anyone, anyone else. Therefore, this is not a competition between me and them to see who can please God more. None of us, the Bible says, can please God. None. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. We are all come into the world by nature objects of God's wrath, children of wrath, the Bible says. That's true for every last one of us. So if you get your self-image from the Bible, it will now humble you. And you'll find yourself not outraged at every slight. Not thinking that you deserve better from the world and that you're better than the world. The first step is to recognize who you are before God, humbly confessing, saying what God says about who you are. That I am a sinner I'm a sinner, as we saw last week, not just in what I say and in what I do, but in who I am. Not just in what I say and do and think, but what, in I, what I fail to say and think and do. Sins of omission. As I think about all of that, and I stand before a holy God, who should be angry? And did you know, friends, that the Bible teaches that the most angry person in the universe is God? And God's anger is always righteous. And God's anger burns against all unrighteousness. And that includes then all of us. The only way that that's made right is by us being reconciled to God. God has this righteous anger toward us. We humbly accept that truth about ourselves. Therefore, it calms us down. We're no longer looking at ourselves as superior to others. And we humble ourselves before God and recognize that our condition was so desperate that it required God himself to come to earth to remedy it. But thanks be to God, the gospel, the good news is this. God did that 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ. The Son of God came to earth, was born of man, did for us what we could not do for ourselves, lived the life that we were supposed to live and died the death that we deserve. And the Bible says that Jesus did all the work, work you can't do because of how you are and how I am. Jesus did all the work, but he offers it to you as a free gift of grace. And you receive it. You receive it not by doing something, but by believing something. You believe who Jesus is. You believe what Jesus has done. And God's anger. God is the most angry person in the universe, righteously at sin. That anger was poured out on the cross at God the Son, Jesus Christ. And that anger was completely satisfied. So that now the anger of God that burns against you, burns against me as we come into this world outside of him is assuaged by Jesus. And When we believe who he is and what he's done, the life and death of Jesus is applied to us personally. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to bow and pray.
When we do, you have opportunity to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're a person who thinks of yourself more highly than you ought. That's true for all of us. But that you've come to realize that you are a sinner, that you're no better than anyone else, that you're so sinful that it required God the Son to come and die for you, and so realize you're a sinner. Recognize what Christ did in living for you and dying for you. Repent, Lord, I am going to go your way, not my way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life when we bow and pray in just a moment. So here's your take-home truth, friends. Anger is a danger that must be controlled. Now, we have laws, we have courts, we have jails. That's one form of control, that's external control. The best form of anger control is internal control. And the internal control comes by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. Remember the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. It's just the opposite of the acts of the sinful nature from that same chapter. Half of those acts and attitudes of the sinful nature have at their root some form of anger. But the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. So we're going to bow now, and as we do, let's thank the Lord for His Holy Spirit. Let's thank the Lord for pouring out His righteous anger upon Jesus rather than on us. And those of you that have never come to God through Jesus, you have opportunity to receive His free gift right now. In your own words to God, acknowledge I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I'm giving my life to you. I'm going to go your way, not my way, Lord. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for allowing us this opportunity to open your word, to be instructed, and to be instructed about this important matter of, of anger. Lord, I admit before you, before your people, that I struggle with anger of different, at different times, in different ways. And very often, most often, it's unrighteous anger. It's unrighteous anger because I just don't like something. Something displeases me. Lord, I ask you to forgive me. And Lord, we, your people, ask you to forgive us, that we would think so highly of ourselves, that we feel that we can exert our displeasure, express our displeasure in various ways from extreme to subtle because we think more highly of ourselves than we really are. But Lord, the cross causes us to see ourselves as you see us. And we see on the cross God the Son having to do what we could not, pay for our sin. He's completely righteous, we unrighteous. And so, Lord, that ought to cure our pride and every vestige of it. May it be so with me. May it be so with, with your people. Lord, may there be people right now in this sacred moment in this room who are confessing their sin of pride and anger to you. And then, Lord, I pray for any of those who came into this room but did not know what the good news of the gospel is. That the good news is that we can have a relationship with the God who made us, with the God who loves us and demonstrated that love by coming himself to earth to provide for our salvation. So the good news is that though I'm a sinner, that bad news can be reversed in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that right now in this sacred moment, you are drawing people to yourself.
and causing them to humble their hearts before you, recognizing that they are a sinner and Jesus is the only payment for it. And as a result of these changes in your people and changes in those who are now becoming your people, we will give you the praise and honor you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.